today on the Made to Thrive show, we've probably got one individual who I think is probably going to live to the age of 150. And the reason I say that, he's the youngest professional biohacker. But I'm going to let him introduce himself, and it's a question I often ask my guests on the Made to Thrive show, is who is Seam Lunt? Yeah, well, uh, I'm a primarily an author. I, uh, you know, do speaking. Uh, I create content online, and uh, I cover mostly things related to um, optimizing health, uh, performance, uh, longevity, and just uh, overall uh, like mindset and uh, wellness. And uh, how old are you, Seem? I'm uh, 26. Great. So, give us the backstory. Why health optimization, and when did you start? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I guess I like started of maybe like five or six years ago. And, uh, uh, the reason I got into it was to just, uh, improve uh, my overall performance and, uh, uh, like primarily fitness. Fitness was my main goal initially. And then I, you know, learned a lot more about the longevity side of things. And, uh, yeah, now I'm just, uh, trying to find uh, like a balance uh, between uh, both of them. So how do I, you know, yeah, definitely increase my longevity, but at the same time, uh, stay um, fit and uh, kind of enjoy life at the same time. Great. But I mean, do you have a passion for health? I mean, what's the reason underlying it? Other than yourself, it seems like you are sort of, uh, you know, got a prestigious amount of uh, excellent work out there, two books. I mean, what has been the internal driver for you to actually teach so many people worldwide? Uh, well, I think uh, the might be some, something to do with uh, not wanting to get sick and not wanting to kind of uh, you know die before uh, you know, because of uh, not I don't want to put like more like uh, uh, efforts or not put uh, like more stress on my family members <laughs> because if I were to get sick or something uh, so it's just a preventative uh, pursuit of uh, just wanting to prevent getting uh, sick in the first place. Great. Uh, let's just jump into your book, Met Metabolic Autophagy. What is autophagy? Yeah, well, uh, it's uh, it's uh, this uh, physiological process inside the body that uh, helps to eliminate uh, these various cell parts and different uh, organelles that are like deemed to be dysfunctional or damaged in some way. So autophagy can el eliminate uh, like broken uh, mitochondria. Uh, these are, uh, you know, debris, cellular debris, senescent cells, uh, the, the different pathogens, and yeah, just this junk material can be eliminated uh, with it. And autophagy also has a pre pretty important role in uh, the immune system. It can be important for like the brain, and uh, yeah, it's a kind of central component to just a healthy cellular uh, functioning. So, with regards to the pandemic this year and having a strong immune system. Autophagy must be extremely important in this process of cell repair, cell regeneration, and dealing with old, you know, stagnant cells or senescent cells. Tell us, how do we sort of activate autophagy? Yeah, well, um, uh, yeah, autophagy can be positive and beneficial, but it can also be uh, harmful, uh, like uh, it depends on the situation. And uh, usually autophagy gets activated uh, in response to some kind of a physiological uh, stressor, such as like uh, fasting, uh, calorie restriction, carbohydrate restriction, uh, exercise, heat stress, cold, uh, hypoxia. And there are also like, you know, different uh, 
uh, compounds and uh, foods that uh, also turn it on, like uh, coffee or uh, green tea, uh, you know, vegetables, uh, dark dark uh, pigment vegetables and uh, curcumin. So it's a like a response to this uh, stress uh, that the body wants to or has to deal with. Uh. Great. So you mentioned fasting. I've just done a fasting webinar for my tribe and my community. Had incredible feedback on it. Tell us why you're such a big proponent of intermittent fasting. You've written a number of books that I found absolutely fascinating that you can find at, uh, and we'll give the social media handles for some, because I think he's just a wealth of information at such a young age, incredible mind. Uh, I've learned so much from him already, but tell me about intermittent fasting and why it's so beneficial. Uh, well, I think uh, it's, it's a, uh... It, it, well, I, the reason I do it has to do mostly with like uh, the convenience and uh, easy, 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 like easy way to do it. Um, so I find it very uh, effective for just time management and uh, uh, maintaining like better health more easily. But there are also yeah some uh, health benefits that you get from it, like primarily improved uh, like glucose metabolism, lower blood pressure, uh, and uh, activation of like these uh, longevity genes that uh, kind of one of them being autophagy and uh, the other other ones uh, as well. Uh, but it's not like, it's not if you compare to like head to head with uh, just regular calorie restriction or uh, let's say regular dieting, then it's not inherently superior, but it does, um, let's say, can increase adherence to a, a particular way of eating. And uh, definitely it, it, it is, let's say pretty uh, suitable for people who just uh, maybe uh, don't prefer to eat uh, several times throughout the entire day all the time. Great, and I agree with you, Sim, because I, I feel that intermittent fasting, not eating at all, having long fasting windows is far e easier than having a calorie restriction, you know, sort of eating plan. And I find it the most powerful nutritional tool. And I don't really want to go into any sort of nutritional wars or diet wars between the carnivore diet and, and veganism and that. But would you agree with the statement that fasting is probably the most important nutritional lever that people can adopt? Um, well, uh, depends, uh, depends on the person. Like, uh, if, uh, like, like I would say like the most important thing in nutritionally would be, you know, eating a primarily like a whole foods diet. Uh, but, uh, like there are like some mice studies where fasting has been shown to, uh, work and improve health even in the presence of like a junk food diet. So um, in some cases the fasting could negate like some of the bad food choices a little bit uh, hypothetically, but uh, I think it's not going to fully replace uh, nutrient-dense soul foods uh, diet. Uh, like I, I, I do think that you could like get away with some, uh, you know, bad foods, but um, yeah, it shouldn't, it, the foundation should still be and this sort of a whole foods diet uh, that uh, eliminates these processed foods and um, yeah maintains a relatively calorie calorie maintenance because it's it's probably not going to work even if if you're like at a huge calorie surplus and uh, you're getting uh, like overweight from from it. But how many people can sort of get into a calorie excess state by sort of doing extended fasts of twenty hours? Is it possible to in that four hours to you know <laughs> consume such a large degree of calories that you're in a calorie excess? Well, I think uh, there are some people who definitely could do it. <laughs> so it's like easy, e it's, it's pretty easy to, you know, reach a calorie surplus if you eat, uh, you know, pizzas or something like an entire pizza. 
that has like maybe 3,000 calories probably, uh, or three to 4,000 calories. So it's, I think, yeah, like it, it would be relatively easy uh, to do if someone like tries, and especially if they come from like a slightly longer fast. Okay. Uh, I found with my own clients over the many years and dealing with a lot of people that the 16-8 process is not nearly as effective as sort of the 20-hour fast, you know, from a sort of a health perspective, from a fat loss perspective, you know, looking at their body compositions and their ratios. Uh, is there a difference in sort of metabolic autophagy between the 16-8 and sort of the 20-hour-4 uh, eating window? Um, not... Uh there's not, not not a huge difference uh, you might see like a slightly lower blood sugar because of uh, fasting for longer uh, you might see like an increase in uh, ketones because of fasting for longer uh, and you may see like a lower blood pressure from there but uh, whether or not it's going to be like a superior or like a better health outcome that depends on also like what you're doing when you break the fast so uh uh, yeah, like it matters what kind of a diet are you following uh, afterwards, uh, what's your exercise and uh, how you sleep as well. So you have to kind of always take those other factors as well into account. Mm. Uh, but uh, like uh, within the 24 hours, there, there isn't um, much uh, difference you can expect in terms of autophagy. So uh, the 24 hour mark is already a very short uh, time frame um, where you could see like some autophagy. So I, I think there is not going to be an inherent uh, difference between 16 hours or 24 hours. Um, generally, like you, if you were to just fast uh, without doing anything, then you would probably start to see autophagy around like day two, uh, day three. That's where it starts to kind of ramp up uh, gradually. And uh, but you can you know speed it up as well with things like exercise and uh, saunas. So uh, like if you were to do like exercise plus a sauna on a 16-hour fast, then you would probably see like more autophagy and more of growth hormone. Uh, compared to just fasting without any exercise and without any saunas on a 24-hour fast. Great. Uh, tell us why exercise stimulates autophagy in that fasting period, and so does why does sauna do that? Yeah, well, exercise uh, is just a physiological stressor that, uh, f first of all, it's going to like uh, burn through some of the body's energy stores, primarily like liver glycogen, uh, which is then allows the activation of this fuel sensor called AMPK, uh, which is uh, one of the key nutrient sensors for uh, ketosis, uh, autophagy, and other like catabolic uh, pathways that start to promote this um, energy production from internal uh, sources. So uh, that's why exercise uh, does that. And uh, with the saunas, the heat, uh, heat stress is going to turn on heat shock proteins which are supposed to start to repair the damage from the heat and um, alleviate the negative side effects from it. And the heat shock proteins are, uh, will also then uh, promote autophagy to kind of uh, you know, eliminate cellular debris that gets created in the process of this uh, stress and heat. Right, I found this absolutely fascinating. Have there been any studies to show with, within a 16-hour fast, if you are exercising and doing sauna, does that correlate to sort of a 36-hour or 48-hour total fast? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, there are like not so specific studies uh, out there, uh, but uh, they, they have like studies with uh, exercise that uh, even like 30 minutes of uh, vigorous exercise can lead to the activation or the increase of these autophagosomes, which are autophagy 
like these uh, related proteins that uh, kind of uh, indicate the process of autophagy. So even like 30 minutes of uh, exercise can be enough to see that it can increase, but uh, you know, it probably kind of rises only due f throughout the process of exercise. And uh, once the exercise stops, then it's going to start to decrease uh, as well. So it's like this acute uh, spike. Do you think this metabolic autophagy is so important for conditions like cancer and cardiovascular disease? Um, well, in, in, in the example of uh, atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease, then um, the autophagy can, it's involved in uh, like uh, eliminating some of the atherosclerotic plaque a little bit. So the body tries to kind of eliminate it with, uh, and autophagy is uh, involved there. Some studies show that, uh, and it can also like prevent the onset of cardiovascular disease by, you know, lowering, keeping your blood pressure low, uh, keeping your insulin and blood sugar low, and uh, and things like that um, but when it comes to cancer then uh, there isn't a whole lot of uh, let's say you know pro or supportive evidence that autophagy kind of helps to remove cancer or eliminate it but it does has been found to be uh, again like preventative uh, role of preventing it getting in, in the first place uh, but in some cases uh, the autophagy process may even support the the uh, not the growth but the kind of survival of cancers and tumors so it kind of uh, keeps them in this metastatic state uh, by essentially helping them to survive so it's not the autophagy kind of you know helping directly the cancer but it's just that the cancer is kind of hijacking the process of autophagy to get the nutrients so like during the process of autophagy the energy gets created from those uh, cellular turnover and uh, the kind of cancer steals that energy to just survive. So it's it's not like a black and white thing that is always good and uh, that you okay. also want to have as much as possible. It's a pretty a context dependent thing and uh, whether or not uh, things like fasting or, um, you know, uh, you know, are beneficial for your particular case depends a lot. You just have to like, uh, monitor it uh, quite actively and uh, definitely not, uh, you know, Definitely not not uh, say no to other alternative uh, like other like not not, uh, not alternative therapies like like but the uh, conventional therapies. Okay, I got you. I think that's fascinating because I've always sort of known that uh, mTOR stimulation of mTOR, you know, eating animal protein or keeping you know calorie sort of levels high can stimulate this receptor, which is involved in you know products like insulin-like growth factor that stimulate the cancer growth and having high levels of glucose in your system. Tell us, you know, about op what apoptosis is and how we sort of, you know, stimulate that in our body, which is very important for our own health. Yeah, well, apoptosis is a programmed cell death. And uh, whereas while autophagy is, you know, cellular turnover, this, uh, apoptosis is the destruction of uh, this uh, cell. And uh, apoptosis can be beneficial, like if you uh, destroy, you know, malignant cells uh, or just other unwanted cells. But it can, at the same time, it can also be harm, harm, harmful if you uh, start to, you know, eliminate, um, you know, good cells and healthy cells. So uh, apoptosis is usually it's uh, the body kind of does it by itself based upon uh, what's what's needed. So like, but it also requires certain uh, nutrients and uh, certain like you know enzymes and pathways to be activated so like magnesium is pretty important for for the body to have uh, so you know conduct apoptosis but uh, generally like i would imagine like you know the radiation partly or radiation th therapy chemotherapy also works partly by stimulating um, apoptosis great uh, you know we've got a common sort of uh 
a friend or colleague, John Jackwish uh, from the X3 bar, and I've had him on the show, and I use the X3 bar uh, extensively. He has the one meal a day, and uh, he's pretty convinced that growth hormone gets, you know, rises significantly, and he's put on a lot of muscle mass. Tell us about sort of anabolic activity, you know, doing extended fast where you're eating only once a day or you've got a 20-hour fast. Can you sort of build muscle and significant strength doing these long fasts? Um, well, uh, the, uh, well, during like longer fasts, you definitely are catabolic. So you are uh, breaking down uh, muscle tissue and uh, protein. Uh, so you're not like building muscle during the process, uh, definitely not. Uh, but like with shorter fasts, you do like see an increase in uh, uh, growth hormone and insulin sensitivity, but uh, growth hormone itself isn't going to inherently make you uh, build uh, muscle. So it's primarily like uh, tries to suppress muscle breakdown and uh, preserve muscle. So which is definitely like a positive thing as useful, but it's not uh, making you anabolic. Uh, for anabolism or muscle growth or tissue growth, you need... Uh, nutrients and the stimulation of like mTOR and muscle protein synthesis so you still need to eat to uh, see, see the muscle growth what, what it made you the fasting is yeah it just improves uh, like nutrient partitioning so that you do like uh, you do get like the muscle growth stimulation from like the eating or the exercise but at the same time you kind of keep the uh, body composition leaner so that you don't uh, you know, gain unnecessarily uh, body fat. Uh, so yeah, the growth hormone there is, uh, it could help in terms of, yeah, like the body recomposition, but it's not then inherently anabolic. So if you were to just fast without exercise and uh, without eating sufficient amount of protein, then you would eventually lose muscle uh, gradually. Whereas uh, if you want to build muscle, then you still need the uh, stimulation from uh, resistance exercise as well as uh, eating uh, protein. Right, and I know there's some advocates that we don't want to be stimulating mTOR as we get older just because of the possibility of activating cancer. I don't know what your view is, is if you're a 40-year-old, 43-year-old uh, man like me who loves his exercise six days a week, who does a lot of aerobic and anaerobic as well as weights, should we be trying to build this you know, muscle-centric approach in our lives to build and uh, strengthen our muscles? Uh, well, the association between mTOR and cancer is not like really solid uh, in human studies so it uh, does appear to be so um, in like you know an, an model on organisms and uh, mice and uh, others uh, but uh, in humans there's not like there no real like evidence to prove that uh, but you know it it might be it might be true to a certain extent so that you, I think you don't probably want to stimulate mTOR all the time and be in this anabolic, anabolic growth all the time. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, whether or not you should restrict protein depends a lot on other things. Uh, so, like, if you eat, if you start to restrict mTOR and uh, restrict your protein intake when you're old, then that can lead to, like, other problems like uh, sarcopenia or muscle loss, which, uh, you know, you, you are, let's say, less capable of building muscle if you're old. And, uh, you know, eating a higher protein diet can uh, prevent that to a certain extent or slow down the process of sarcopenia. So it's a kind of a, it's a kind of cost to benefit ratio analysis that uh, you, you do uh, potentially may stimulate the mTOR, but you also, you know, maintain your muscle mass and, and uh, promote the growth of anabolic tissue. So you, you know, you, it, 
in some in some ways losing uh, muscle mass and becoming frail can be even more harmful so to say that or even more um, negative for some people that they lose their uh, functionality and uh, yeah like muscle mass is also very vital for just overall metabolic health so if you have less muscle mass then your your ability to tolerate carbs and calories is also lower so you might get obese because of having not having enough muscle mass you might get insulin resistance and you and you might also experience like immunosenescence because of uh, this and so yeah it's uh, not that simple that you should restrict your protein to uh, live longer so there are other benefits from the uh, protein intake mTOR that uh, will actually promote longevity great uh, you are probably the youngest uh biohacker, professional biohacker in the world with uh, quite a bit of sort of work out there and international fame, for want of a better word. Take us through the day of Seam Lunt, how he starts his morning and uh, how you institute a lot of these daily routines and habits. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I usually wake up around like six or seven and uh, I don't like have a fancy routine. I just, uh, you know, do a little stretching maybe and I'll uh, start to work uh, to uh, write something, uh, write a book or write an article, uh, edit a video, uh, something like, you know, creative and uh, productive. I'll try to do that uh, first thing in the morning to get it out of the way. And uh, after that, I do it for maybe until noon uh, or 12. Then I'll go for a walk, short walk uh, outside. Uh, take a break, let my brain uh, recover, and uh, get some fresh air. After the walk, I'll I'll you know start checking my email. I'll start to like the, all the other chores that I need to do. Um, and uh, yeah, in the afternoon, I'll just um, I'll have a, like a workout, whether it be a cardio or with weights. And in the evening, I'll uh, just eat uh, eat my dinner and kind of wind down to relax. Uh, just uh, have a little bit of fun and uh, let my mind take a break from the work. So, so I would, you know, be prepared for sleep and uh, yeah, enjoy the next day. Right. Uh, do you incorporate infrared sauna or cold thermogenesis at all, Seam? Yeah, yeah, I do. I take the sauna basically every day. And uh, yeah, it's usually I'll take it uh, after my exercise um, in, in the afternoon. Right, and the difference between aerobic exercise, the you know the health benefits of aerobic exercise versus anaerobic or high intensity interval training. Let's uh, just get your opinion on how important those are for for health. Yeah, well, uh, I do both. So uh, depends on depends on uh, like the particular. Um, uh, cycle or the period of my workout routine. So if I've if I've been trying to build muscle, uh, or if I've been trying to yeah in increase strength, then uh, I'll uh, take I'll I'll do less uh, hit cardio because uh, I it it will like put an additional stressor on the body and kind of mimics this heavier workout and it can interfere. It's kind of just you know add an additional layer to my recovery that I have to take care of. Uh, whereas if I did Whereas, like only regular cardiovascular exercise, uh, endurance, uh, low intensity, slow intensity, or low intensity, uh, what is it, <laughs> cardio? Yeah, that that, that one uh, that is not going to interfere with recovery from resistance training as much uh, compared to hit cardio. So that's why I usually do like uh, one day I'll do uh, weights with resistance training. The second day I'll do like some cardio, and whether it be like cycling or walking, and then another day weights. Uh, another day cardio and a kind of cycle between that and I may have like a hit actual hit cardio session with like some sprints or kettlebells uh, or burpees or something like that uh, 
maybe once every two weeks or once a week, depending on if I'm, if I, like during the summer, I'll do more hit, I'll do like hit maybe once or twice a week. Uh, but during the winter months, uh, when I'm more focused on like weights and resistance training, then I'll do hit, uh, yeah, once, probably once, once two weeks. But yeah, both are pretty uh, beneficial for longevity. Uh, the hit cardio, uh, you can achieve like similar, like some studies show that the, you can achieve the similar endurance and aerobic benefits with hit cardio as you would with regular endurance. But you also get the anaerobic benefits with, from hit. Uh, so uh, kind of, uh, it's a very more time efficient way of uh, getting the benefits of cardio without having to go for a long cardio session. But at the same time, the hit cardio is also something that you have to recover from um, for longer. And uh, you can't do, or, like I wouldn't recommend doing hit, uh, you know, every day all the time, because that can just lead to overtraining and uh, kind of suppress the thyroid functioning and cause too much stress. Okay, great. Uh, I'm a big flow, uh, fan of blood flow modulation or restriction katsu, and we've got the sole distribution rights here for katsu bands. Tell us about your use of katsu. I see it on your website, and now you had a long discussion with Dr. McCullough about this, you know, the benefits of blood flow modulation and sort of the downsides. Yeah, the, I'm also a big fan of katsu. And uh, the main thing is that it kind of restricts some of the blood flow in your uh, limbs. And uh, that can kind of trick the body into thinking that it's lifting heavier weights than it actually is. So it creates this perceived exertion or perceived stress uh, to the, um, the circulation. And uh, yeah, you can use it to treat injuries like... Uh, with like regular BFR bands, you could, uh, you know, help to recover from injuries faster, but, but, but you have, for those, you have to like do some actual movements. You have to do like a biceps curl or a triceps pushdown or a, like a lunge or a squat. Whereas with the Katsu cycle bands, you don't have to do that. Uh, you, you get the automatic cycles, the pressure on and pressure off, which kind of pumps the muscle in a way by, you know, regulating the pressure in the cuffs. So, uh, yeah, you can even use the Katsu bands for like, uh, if you break, break an arm and um, is put into a cast, so you can use the cuts bands and still maintain like muscle mass um, despite having, uh, not Im having the arm uh, immobile. So that's a really good thing for recovery. I use it also on my rest days uh, to, let's say, recover from exercise faster. Uh, but in addition to that, it also helps with like, uh, like cardiovascular health, uh, endothelial functioning. It, uh, it uh, has been shown in like, you know, some goats to uh, promote the stem cells. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it does. Uh, it's a pretty amazing thing for just improving blood flow and uh, recovery. Excellent. And uh, your view on the X3 bar, I've put about five kilograms of muscle in my body composition, probably in the last year using X3 bar. And I find a very difficult exercise, but just the thinking of the different strengths that you have in the different range of movement uh, discussing with this with John Jackwish was pretty profound and I've seen it you know be a significant effect uh, in my life what do you feel about the x3 yeah I also have the x3 and it's a uh, amazing I really like it and uh, um, I do if I were to like use resistance training uh, at home then I would definitely use it um, for sure it's it's a uh, convenient and it does give you like a good workout if you really push yourself to the failure I noticed like a a bit more significant uh, effect when I first started using it because it, like, it was novel stimulus and uh, it was something the body wasn't uh, like that used to and 
whereas like now I notice less of a stimulus, maybe I need to take a break from it a little bit to kind of reset the kind of sensitivity. But yeah, generally you can, you can uh, essentially train your, um, you, can, you can stimulate the maximum muscle growth in all ranges of motion. Uh, whereas with re regular barbell exercises or weights, you're kind of limited by your weakest range of motion. So you can't really overload the muscle as much as you could. Uh, whereas with the uh, resistance band or variable resistance, you're always uh, pushing the maximum intensity on all ranges of the motion. And if you push it to actual like near failure, then it does uh, send a signal for the body to, uh, you know, start to build muscle or like at least uh, prepare for building muscle. Great, uh, I found the same. What do you think about, con you know, combining the X3 bar with uh, Katsu bands? Uh, well, uh, I haven't tried it, but um, well, I think uh, you could use it for maybe like the biceps curls uh, or something like that. But I, but I wouldn't use it for the deadlifts or or the or the chest press uh, because that may be too um, too intense uh, for that. that like the, with the cardio bands, the exercise uh, should be slightly you know, moderate. So you you don't the goal with the cardio bands isn't to reach like complete failure. Uh, uh, so whereas whereas with the exterior bar it is so I would I would use the maybe culture bands only with like the easier accessory exercises like the uh, biceps curl. Great. Anything else uh, we've left out with regards to your daily routine that's important from a health optimization point of view? Mm, well, uh, maybe like sleep. That you know I mm -hmm. do try to block out uh, blue light in the evening, wearing blue blockers and creating like this optimal circadian environment. So getting day, morning, morning uh, sunlight uh, and su sunlight throughout the entire day and in the evening uh, blocking out this artificial light. So that's a one of the most important things uh, in my opinion for uh, just sleeping better. Great, and I see uh, we also uh, a partner with blue blocks and I find their you know, lenses incredibly good, you know, blocking the 400 to 550 nanometers, the orange or red lens at night. Very important uh, for melatonin to be released and improving your sleep quality. I find that sort of photobiomodulation and the blue blocking devices have improved my deep sleep especially my infrared sauna. But uh, and I had a long chat to Dr. Ollie about this is how do we improve REM sleep? Uh, I find that uh, REM sleep, according to the research and, and people like Dr. Matthew Walker have said that REM sleep is probably more important than deep sleep. I don't know what your view is on that and how we improve REM sleep. Uh, yeah, well, uh, what I've found the most important thing uh, for imp improving REM sleep is uh, the sleeping long enough so like uh, REM sleep uh, actually like mo the majority of uh, REM sleep happens in the later part of the night so like early in the morning whereas deep sleep happens in the first half of the night uh, like around midnight so um, the reason like I, I'm sometimes if I see less REM sleep then it has to do with waking up too early so my body doesn't have the chance to get mm. sufficient amounts of REM so I think like a, yeah aiming for a full uh, you know, eight to nine hours sleep would probably eventually give you a sufficient amount of uh, REM sleep as a result of that as well. Uh, but, 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 but for that, like uh, eating uh, slightly earlier has been shown to for me to be impo important for that. Uh, not having, let's say, stress later in the evening, avoiding blue light for sure. And uh, like magnesium is, is something that I, it does help with deep sleep, but it, you know, probably helps with REM sleep as well. And uh, those, those are the things that uh, I have noticed the most. 
Great. Uh, what numbers are you really looking at? How many hours of deep sleep and REM sleep is ideal for possibly yourself and for the general population? Uh, yeah, well, um, I think a healthy amount of deep sleep is approximately like between two and three hours uh, is a healthy amount uh, or like the optimal amount. Um, some people might even get away with like one and a half hours, but I think yeah, for, for you know, good health, optimal health, you should definitely get it uh, between two and three hours. Uh, and it's probably the same with REM as well. Uh, maybe with REM, the, the kind of upper limit would be like two and a half hours. So I, I wouldn't uh, go above that. So for REM, maybe two to two and a half hours uh, per night. Great. With all your biohacking, are you reaching those numbers? Because from my ordering, I'm not getting anywhere close to making sure that those two numbers are together. Uh, yeah, I do get like a my deep sleep is always uh, pretty much between two and a th two and three hours. Uh, my REM is sometimes like one and a half hours or one hour. Uh, but that's again, like sometimes because of uh, waking up too early or uh, something like that. So yeah, uh, with the O-ring, like it, it's, it's some, some people do say that they don't really get any good numbers at all. <laughs> uh, even with like heart rate and heart rate variability, uh, which might be because of the ring, who knows? Uh, so yeah, I'm not sure. Like if you if you were to use like another device to kind of mm. test or uh, experiment, uh, then you you would probably get a better understanding of that. Because like if I use some some other device like a Dream Headband, uh, then I do notice that I get uh, pretty high amounts of REM uh, and uh, like the same amount of deep sleep as well. Great, and I think I agree with you there that possibly the device is not totally accurate, but it's probably pretty precise that it's making the same errors. So. You know, what I advocate is people looking at their trends. You know, what are their trends of deep sleep? What are their trends of REM sleep? I think that's important to compare to yourself, you know. And uh, yeah, all right. Absolutely. Yeah, great. So let's move on to your next book, Stronger by Stress. If you can just explain what hormesis is. Uh, yeah, well, hormesis is uh, basically, you can you can describe it with the quote that that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. So it's this... Uh, biological response of or the ability of the body to uh, get stronger from certain amounts of uh, toxins and uh, stressors uh, in moderation so in small amounts it's uh, stimulatory in moderation it's like optimal and if it's in excess then it will lead to you know negative side effects and harm harm so examples of hormesis would be exercise uh, if you don't exercise at all, then you're at a greater risk of uh, health problems. If you exercise too much, then that can also you know, weaken the immune system and make you more vulnerable. And if you exercise in moderation and in just enough, then that's the, the Goldilocks. Uh, so everything has this bell curve and uh, you can put this hormesis on the bell curve for different things. And uh, every, every kind of substance like you know, coffee, uh, alcohol, um, carbohydrates, or, and as well as like... Uh, activities like the sauna, the cold, radiation, they all have this bell curve effect and they all have like these hormetic uh, principles. Great. And uh, tell us what your most important sort of indicators or measurements are, whether someone is uh, under too much oxidative stress or stress in their body. You know, I've noticed I've run a lot of marathons. We run an ultra marathon here called the Comrades Marathon, which is 90 kilometers. And a lot of my aerobic and anaerobic exercises causes a lot of stress in the body. What are the measurements that you look for with regards to too much stress in the body? Um, well, I think uh, usually like the elevation of CRP or C-reactive protein is uh, something uh, that indicates like a higher inflammation and oxidative stress. 
then like a lower HRV can be a sign of that so that your body is, you know, under higher amounts of stress and isn't recovering from it. And then uh, like a drop in uh, immune cells, like a drop in uh, white blood cells and neutrophils, that can be, usually it happens uh, during like an infection, but I would imagine that uh, it also happens uh, if you're like uh, severely stressed and uh, overburdened. But like, you know, subjective signs to look out for is like, you know, lack of motivation, uh, fat chronic fatigue, uh, depression, anxiety, just, uh, yeah, not feeling uh, energized at all. And, uh, not, you know, that's just the body it kind of focusing mostly on trying to repair the damage from the stress and uh, the exertion. So you the kind of all the other, you know, po positive things uh, or positive mindsets are just put on the back burner. Great. Uh, you know, I find in my own life that I can deal with infrared sauna and the heat shock proteins as a hormetic stress. I, I do well with intermittent fasting, with exercise, all forms of exercise. But I really struggle, seem, with the cold thermogenesis. It, uh, I, I struggle with the cold. I've tried over the years to incorporate it into my lifestyle. Are there certain hormetic stresses that are just sort of too great for certain people based on genetics or location? Uh well, I do think that um, some genetics would probably uh, be involved, uh, like especially maybe cold tolerance. Uh, but uh, mo but like those kind of things are very, you know, epigenetic, if that makes sense, that they, they are the result of mostly the lifestyle and uh, kind of conditioning. So uh, uh, if, you, if you do find it, you know, more difficult, then uh, it, it might take you like a slightly longer time and it just... Uh, requires a more habitual exposure to kind of build up this uh, tolerance uh, so yeah like i i find the most uh, benefit from uh, just uh, trying to not 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 freak out and not make it uh, like a big deal uh, when you are in the cold so if you're like always tensing up in response to getting into the cold then you're creating this habit, uh, like neurological pattern in your brain that starts to associate like, like that feeling with this response that you're always going to uh, tense up and uh, freak out uh, in the cold. So what I like to do is kind of, <laughs> it's like, I, I like to say like you have to kind of yield to the cold, give into it and uh, kind of really relax your body and kind of let loose. And you kind of, it is, you know, somewhat, um, kind of a different experience because you're uh, not trying to fight it and you start to more explore what goes on inside the body. And during this process, you're going to realize that it's uh, yeah, not that big of a deal. And it's actually very fascinating to kind of try, you, you can start to see, uh, or you can start to experience your body from this uh, outside perspective that you're not associating the pain or the uh, coldness with you and your body. You're kind of, you're looking at it as, as a, like an object that you can almost uh, touch and um, not be like fully affected by. Great. Uh, give us a little bit of indication on your breathing techniques. Uh, Patrick McEwen from the Oxygen Advantage has been on the show. I know that James Nestor has just written a book and he's been on Bulletproof Radio and Tom Bellew's show. How important is breathing and what uh, breathing techniques do you adopt? Uh, well, uh, I usually I do like a box breathing, regular box breathing. And uh, that has been pretty much the most or like the easiest one that I use for like relaxation or just mindfulness. Uh, 
I do like try to practice as much nasal breathing as uh, possible, even like doing exercise. So I'll, I'll even like after a hit session or something doing cardio, I'll always try to breathe through my nose as much as possible, which can be also like a good breathing exercise. So you're not uh, overstimulating the sympathetic nervous system and you are like promoting uh, recovery. It, it does make it more difficult because you have like limited amount of air that you can get in through the nostrils compared to the mouth. Uh, but it can it can also be you know create this hypoxic effect, uh, which in moderation can be uh, beneficial for improving uh, like aerobic fitness and uh, oxygen uh, like uh, efficiency. Great, uh, I've been using uh, the continuous glucose monitor as a biohack with myself and with many of my clients that I coach. Give us your perspective on CGM and how important is glucose sort of variability and uh, in the body. Yeah, well, uh, a CGM is an amazing tool for um, figuring out how you res how, how, what's your blood sugar response to different foods uh, so you don't have to prick yourself all the time. And uh, it does give you like a pretty invaluable data to your metabolic health as well as maybe yeah, like what, what's your response uh, to sp specific uh, foods. So, uh, you know, glucose monitoring can be used to, uh, you know, treat or not treat like you're not going to treat it with it but you can uh, figure out uh, what, what is causing you the most uh, biggest problems in terms of uh, glucose uh, metabolism so if you are seeing a massive spike in your blood sugar uh, while eating a banana then that's probably not a good thing uh, because you know you don't really want to have these massive spikes uh, throughout the entire day uh, you would much rather want to keep um, uh, the blood sugar stable uh, so if, if it does rise a little bit then it's probably not big of a deal as long as it comes down afterwards as well. So you can really assess your overall um, kind of metabolic health uh, with that, uh, just knowing or just seeing uh, how you react to uh, different foods. Great. And uh, what's your sort of personal experience with CGM? Have you used it? And what are the things that have benefited your sort of glucose stability? Uh, yeah, I've uh, used uh, like NutriSense. They have a pretty good app and they they use like the Freestyle Libra um, CGM, and uh, what I noticed was that that uh, like my blood sugar is pretty stable all throughout the entire day all the time uh, because of uh, like uh, interval fasting and it doesn't you know spike at all throughout the day only like maybe doing exercise it does rise but uh, afterwards it uh, drops down as well uh, when I do eat uh, then the blood sugar does rise you know, above what's normal, but it doesn't stay elevated uh, for that for too long. So it does come down uh, relatively quickly as well. So yeah, I didn't see any um, no problems uh, with my glucose metabolism. And you know, the biggest things that affect that is probably like physical activity as well as muscle mass. So if you're um, burning carbs basically throughout the entire day with physical exercise, as well as having more muscle mass, then uh, your body's ability to tolerate those carbs is also higher and you're more insulin sensitive. So whenever you do eat, the carbs will be shuttled into muscle much more faster. And uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of the most important uh, factor for determining uh, your glucose metabolism. But other things that can also affect it like uh, you know, uh, like uh, interval fasting can can be useful for that for just lowering uh, blood sugar, and uh, the saunas generally they do uh, may may rise your blood sugar in the sauna because of the heat stress, but uh, the overall effect is that you are more insulin sensitive, uh, similar to exercise because it does mimic, mimic some aspects of uh, exercise, 
with uh, in, in, in increasing uh, cardiovascular uh, function. Great, thank you for that summary. A lot of valuable information there. Tell us where biohacking is going. Any new exciting developments in the future of biohacking? Well, I'm pretty sure that there is uh, a lot of interesting things uh, on the horizon. Uh, like we probably, uh, I don't probably know all of the uh, mm. inventions uh, that are coming out, but uh, I'm pretty interested to see like what's going to happen with uh, these like uh, stem cell therapy, uh, like peptide therapy. Um, and uh, yeah, like I, I think um, that can be lead to like the, another breakthrough in longevity science and uh, anti-aging. Mm, because I don't think like we we probably aren't going to live above uh, 150 or 120 with these natural means. Like you probably won't live to 120 if you're just doing intermittent <laughs> fasting and saunas and exercise. You probably would need some uh, artificial, um, like some drug or something else, uh, some other technology to kind of reach that. Uh, but it does help you to stay healthier for longer. So it increases this health span so that you're uh, more functional and vigorous for longer uh, and you experience less of the negative side effects of aging. Great. Uh, I found uh, it been very difficult over many years to keep people motivated, keep my clients motivated and disciplined to continue these lifestyle habits. You're a young man at 26. You seem extremely disciplined, extremely motivated. Tell me, what are the most important factors in your opinion that help people maintain or sustain their transformation? Uh, well, um, I think uh, there needs to be like the bigger, like a reason or some uh, some yeah, incentive that um, kind of uh, takes the, re the requirement of motivation out of it. So you shouldn't need to be motivated to do the things that you need to do. Uh, what, that can be like so just like some higher goal, some purpose, um, or it can also be like a scare. Like some people, may, they, some people may start to take care of their health only if they get like a heart attack uh, and uh, or some some other disease. But uh, yeah, generally there are kind of people have to kind of think of very thoroughly of like why am I doing this? Uh, what are the reasons? Uh, what what's what's the end result that I want to reach? Uh, and uh, yeah, then, then keep remind yourself of that uh, continuously. So um, then kind of the the rationale for making those decisions would also get easier. Great, and uh, last question before we wrap up, and thank you so much for your time, Sim. You interviewed Dr. McCullough on uh, his latest book, EMF. Tell us uh, just what your perspective is on the damaging effects of electromagnetic radiation. Is it as pervasive as uh, many of the health practitioners have said it is? Or, you know, there's a lot of people out there, the public, that are totally unaware of the damaging effects of this type of radiation. Where do you stand on this topic? Uh, well, I think, uh, I think uh, EMF does have uh, like a physiological effect on the body and it can increase like oxidative stress. Um, but uh, whether or not it's harmful depends on again, yeah, like what's, how much of it are you getting and uh, how frequently, like if, you, if you're only exposed to it uh, for certain parts of the day, uh, then it's probably not that big of an issue because your body is able to you know tolerate it to a certain extent and uh, recover from it so yeah like the problem is that in the modern world we're just constantly surrounded by it all the time so uh, that's why i think uh, if you take time you know, during the day where you're not uh, surrounded by emf by you know by going to nature 
uh, or uh, walking on the beach um, or like yeah, using these grounding mats, sleeping and grounded, that can be uh, a perfect way to prevent this EMF exposure from becoming uh, chronic and actually something that you can you know, fully recover from. And what about your sleep at night? Do you do any shielding or do you have a canopy or shielding paint when you sleep? And how do you sort of mitigate against the electromagnetic radiation where you live? Uh, yeah, well, I live on the countryside, so I don't have like a bunch of uh, cell towers or something. Uh, but I do use uh, like a grounding mat uh, on my bed, uh, mm. which is uh, connected to the earth. And mm. so I think, well, and I have like uh, the blue shield uh, EMF kind of shield in my house. So, uh, like, I haven't, I do notice, like, maybe a slight, um, let's say, less arousal or slight less anxiety if uh, I have it turned on. Whereas if it's turned off, then uh, there is, like, this some sort of, like, a small, I don't know, not, not like, something serious, but some, something uh, kind of keeping me more alert, <laughs> if that makes sense. Right. Uh, last question, Seem. If uh, people have to implement two or three biohacks, what are your top two, three biohacks or you know, action steps that they can do today to improve and optimize their health? Uh, well, I think uh, the first uh, thing that you should do is to optimize your sleep and try to get uh, as good sleep as you can. Because like if uh, none of those tricks are going to work if uh, your sleep is uh, suboptimal uh, or like deficient. Uh, so yeah, like everything is going to get better if you get uh, good, good sleep. Uh, then I would probably recommend some like hot and cold therapy uh, because uh, yeah, the benefits are quite immense and uh, it does feel good as well, uh, both physically and mentally. And lastly, I would say some, uh, some kind of, uh, yeah, like a, regular exercise routine that uh, kind of focuses more, more like, uh, both on the uh, resistance training and uh, cardiovascular exercise. Great. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Seem. Just tell us where we can, you know, tell the tribe, the Mate to Thrive tribe, where they can find you, your social media handles, your extensive free eBooks. Give us all your, your handles. Yeah. My uh, website is uh, seemland.com and uh, on the social media, I'm uh, seemland on all the platforms. Great. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best. And uh, I hope you're writing your next book. Are you writing your next book, Seem? Uh, yeah, it's actually finished. Uh, it's uh, co-authored with uh, Dr. James De Nicola Antonio. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's called The Immunity Fix. And it talks wow. about uh, strengthening the immune system. Great. Well, we look forward to it. When, that, when is that coming out, Seem? It's actually coming uh, around this time, like, you know, maybe this week. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Congratulations. And we wish you all the best and look forward to more of your work. And uh, just thank you for being the absolute pioneer and uh, 26 years old and taking on the world for sure. Thank Thanks. you so much.